Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back up to Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, today may be a good day to have a bookmarker there if, if you keep it there. We're going to turn around just a, co- a couple different passages throughout it. But I want to open up talking about the difference between us and God, just how fast the chasm is. Because it's crucial for us to understand the difference between us and God if we're going to understand God, who we are, the problems we find ourselves in. So, obviously we think about God, one of the first verses that comes to everyone's mind is, His thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. He is higher than us, He is righteous, He is good and holy. He is not a man that He can lie or change His mind. God is so great, so so majestic, that even if a man is to stand before him in the right, he is blown away. That's what we see from Job chapter 9. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's perfectly just. He builds his throne upon steadfast love. He is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So how can we affirm all of these things? How can we believe in such an amazing God and see all the suffering in the world? It's one of the, the, the classic questions asked to Christians. Where is God in the midst of suffering? What is happening there? And on the one hand, we could just simply say, well, all people are sinful, so they deserve to suffer, and that's the end of that. But I don't think that's the, the picture the Bible paints, even though we are all sinful, even though we all are deserving of death. Instead, I like to think about the book of Job. Job is a man who is declared righteous and blameless by God in chapter 1, right at the beginning. And he loses everything. He goes through as much suffering as we can possibly understand. He loses his family, his wealth. His friends show up and basically start making fun of him. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Because he's attacked unjustly by Satan, right? We know that as the the readers of Job. So he knows he's got this correct claim. He knows he's in the right. He knows he's righteous as far as human righteousness will take him. And yet, even though he is unjustly attacked, when God shows up, he's still blown away. He still can't answer. He's never convicted of sin, but he can't answer God. So that's why we need somebody who can answer to God for our weakness. That's why in Job chapter 9, he talks about we need a mediator who can lay hands on both God and man. Now, in the Old Testament, the person appointed to the role of mediator was the high priest. That's what it's saying right here in verse Verse 1 of chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. But as we see moving down this text, Jesus has been exalted to this position. We see it in verse 5 of chapter 5 that Christ was exalted. And what does this mean for us? How was he exalted? Well, He was exalted through the resurrection and the ascension. 
And that's crucial for us to hold on to, that Christ was exalted in this way. For if Christ is not risen, then we are the most pitiable of all people. If it is a lie that Christ has been risen, that Christ has been exalted to the position he is in, then we live lives of lies. Our prayers are on death ears. Nothing we do matters. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. So we have to hold fast to this idea. That's what it says in in verse 14 of chapter 4, if you remember back to last week, that since we have a great high priest, since Jesus has been risen, has been exalted, and has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to this confession. Let us hold fast to the truth that Jesus was exalted. But that means we need to take time to understand what verses 8 and 9 mean. I'm going to read them again. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, of God un, has no beginning, has no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am. How are we supposed to understand that all those things we said about God at the beginning, all the things we affirm about God are true? How are we supposed to understand that God is unchanging and stay? That Jesus, as the Son of God, as God himself, God incarnate, grows in obedience, is made perfect. Well, This is where the idea that we need a mediator who can lay hands on both God and man comes in. Jesus learns what it's like to experience life as a human being. Because we have to understand that God cannot be tempted. That's what James tells us in Chapter 1, verse 13 of James. And if God cannot be tempted, if he is so perfect, so beyond all of those things, that none of the evil in this world, none of the filth or suffering in this world could ever possibly touch him or come close to him, but is simply burned up by his mere presence, then how can he speak to our weakness? How can he know what it's like to go through those experiences? For he is not a man as we are. This is why Jesus comes in the flesh. This is what it means that he is made perfect. He gains the right to speak for human beings, beset by weakness, beset by limitations, because he lives the life of a human being. The eternal Son of God understands what it is like to go through the limitations, the lack of knowledge, the lack of power, the lack of understanding that we go through. He knows what that is like because he comes in human flesh. That's what it means when he says that um, since he himself is beset by weakness in verse 2 there. Because Jesus was beset by the same weakness of being a human being. But this is why he is able to be exalted. Because he remains spotless throughout all of that. Through all of the trials and tribulations that Jesus goes through, he doesn't sin. He remains perfect. And now, 
None of us can say that, for there is no one righteous. It gets back to the idea that, well, maybe that's just what we deserve. But Jesus, by remaining spotless, by remaining the same as he was yesterday, today, and forever, becomes the author of our salvation. He becomes someone who is able to identify with our weakness and who is able to save us from the very power of the grave because he understands. And this is why he was exalted. That's what we're told in verse 7. Because he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save, to God himself, and he was heard because of his reverence or obedience or perfection, however, however it's translated for you. Jesus Christ was exalted because he was perfectly righteous and died anyways. Do you want to understand what injustice feels like? Christ understands it. Because there's nothing more unjust than being punished for something you didn't do. Right? Anyone who's had brothers and sisters kind of tell you that. You get blamed for a lot of things. But the wages of sin is death. And so Christ Jesus, as a perfect human being, as God himself, still receives the wages for sin, even though he doesn't do them. And because he remains perfect through all of that, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so there's something we need to understand about Jesus being exalted. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. It wasn't just that Jesus ascended, right? He ascends the one time, and then all of a sudden, everything stops. He's ascended and exalted into the position of high priest. But there's, there's something important for us to understand about that, because in the Old Testament, it's promised that the priesthood would go to Aaron. If you have your Bibles, open up to Numbers chapter 18. It's kind of a hard one to find. We don't normally go to Numbers. But it's back in the Pentateuch. It's the fourth book. And Numbers chapter 18 is talking about the duties of the priests and the Levites. And what we see here, in verse 1 it starts, So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary and with you and your sons, with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die." They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the services of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary, over the altar, that they may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. 
And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So, priests are supposed to be Levites. We're from the tribe of Aaron, right? But if we know our history, Jesus is a descendant of David descendant of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is where a king is supposed to come from and not the priesthood. But looking back at Numbers chapter 18, did you notice what everything was connected to? The sanctuary, the tent of meeting, the veil. Jesus is exalted in such a way that all of the things there pass away. They've been fulfilled. The veil was torn at the death of Christ. It's what we're told at the end of Matthew. It's important for us to understand that Christ's priesthood is so great that all of that has passed away. And so when we think about everything or nothing will pass away until all is fulfilled, it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now we have stepped into something new, something great. And it also points to something important. This is how we're supposed to understand that Christ is a a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because he's also a king. He comes from the the tribe of Judah. He is the one who the Lord exalted to his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. His scepter is the one that goes forth. He is the true king of Israel. And what we learn about Melchizedek, he shows up for about seven verses, Genesis 14, 17 through 24, if you want to make a note. But we learn that he is a king over Salem, city of righteousness that will become Jerusalem. And he is a priest of God most high. So when we think about Jesus Christ as a priest in that order, what are we supposed to think of? That he is the king of righteousness and that he is the priest of God most high. But as with anything, Christ doesn't simply come in and do the bare minimum. He is greater than that which came before him. And so when we think about him being exalted, what does it actually mean for us? That he remains exalted to this day that he remains a king and a priest. It means that the kingdom of God is still at hand. That when Jesus comes and says, the kingdom, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand, that still applies to me and you. It means that we can draw near to the throne of grace. That's what we talked about last week. That the throne of grace is still available. And we can draw near, not as Job did, through fear, for he feared that God would blow him away, though he was righteous, but we can draw near to the throne of grace through love, though we are sinners. For perfect love is this, that or love has been perfected in this, that perfect love casts out fear. The amount of difference between the mediation of the Old Testament and the New Testament is such that we can live lives of love, that we can enter into God's presence. There's no more 
sacrificial system where the, old, the high priest offers sins for himself and for everybody else and goes behind the veil for a single day of the year. It's been torn. It's been done away with. Instead, because Jesus is exalted, he continues to hold open the veil between God and men. He continues to hold open the door room to the throne of grace. And because Jesus is exalted, he continues to rule. Now, how does he rule except through the Holy Spirit? For we are told in John 14 that the Holy Spirit will come when Jesus is exalted to the Father. Now, that's why it continues to be at hand. That's why the kingdom is still here. That's why you, me, I, we, people who have never seen Jesus Christ or anyone who saw Jesus Christ or anyone who saw Jesus Christ, that's why we're still able to be saved because the Holy Spirit continues to be here, continues to work in the lives of each and every one of us. It continues to soften people's hearts. God continues to give people a new heart and a new spirit when they're born again. And the kingdom of Christ continues to be at hand as long as we repent and believe, we persevere, and we preach his gospel. And now there's something that I think we overlook often with the Holy Spirit. He gives many wonderful gifts, right? And I'm sure that Everyone here has an opinion on whether we can still speak in tongues and prophesy however you want to take it. But we overlook the most important gift that the Holy Spirit gives us. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've been to more than one Christian wedding, you probably have heard this chapter. You probably know what it means. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 comes on the heels of chapter 12, obviously. And in chapter 12, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, how to handle them, what they are. And then he says this in, chapter, or in verse 31 of chapter 12. I will show you a still more excellent way. He says, I'll show you a more excellent way than tongues and prophecies and apostles and prophets a more excellent way than all of these gifts that we bicker back and forth about. And then he gives us chapter 13. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. All of the things that we're given in this world will pass away. And at the end of it all, faith will become sight, hope will be realized, and all that will remain is love. The gift of the Holy Spirit that shows that you have been born again is love for, as John tells us, we know that we have passed from death onto life through love. We know that Jesus is exalted if we have been born again, and we've been born again if we live lives of love. That's why we can say that all of the gifts of the Spirit don't matter unless you love. That's why we can say that God is love. Because without that single unifying factor, without the love of Christ in your heart, you're not a Christian. I don't care how many good things you do. That's what Paul is telling us. That just because you drag yourself out of bed and force yourself to go do things that you know are probably the right thing to do, that doesn't make you a Christian. It's loving the things of God. It's loving the people of God. Because at the end of it all, all that will remain is love of God and love of your neighbor. That's why Christ can say that the two greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. And this is how we know This is how we know that we're Christians. This is how we know that we're saved. This is how we know that the world has passed away and that Jesus Christ remains exalted to this very day by living lives of love. And now, when we think about this, we should do it with all the more fervor. We should live these lives, these lives that believe that Christ is the only way to love and that we must and we will live that life. We must do it increasingly with urgency because Christ will be exalted. At the end of all things, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of them. Whether you live a life of love or not, you're going to find out that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And that should motivate us if we really love the people around us, if we really love the community we're in, to understand that loving them is telling them about Jesus Christ. Because whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. We can continue to be forgiven for our sins in this world. And not just us, but everyone around us, anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, anyone who would repent of their sins and be baptized, persevere to the end. This is what we're told. And in that day, when every single knee bows to Jesus Christ, what else happens? God becomes the death of the grave. He swallows up death, wipes away every tear. He is seated in the glory of the new creation. If that picture isn't in your mind, then you need to do some soul searching. If you don't have a constant idea of God is going to set all things right, 
Everything here will pass away. And in that day, Jesus Christ will be glorified beyond all belief. We'll get to see him face to face. If that picture isn't in your mind when you talk to people, when you go throughout your day, when you're reading your Bible and when you're praying, then you, you might have missed the point a little bit. Because it's the great promise that we will be saved from our sins. And there is no salvation from our sins apart from the new heavens and the new earth. If Christ does not raise us to something, then we are not raised. And this is what he has promised to raise us to. And it's for this reason that Christ won't be the only one exalted in the new heavens and the new earth. He will exalt those who exalt him. When we are raised, when we are glorified in Christ Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is passed away, Christ raises you up too. That's part of what we have to understand. That he will exalt those who exalted him. Hosea chapter 11, verse 7. One of the big complaints that God has for his people. They call upon the name of the Lord, but they do not exalt it. Been here on Sunday nights, you know, John has talked about how the priests would talk about God, but they wouldn't hallow his name. When we think about what that means and how it applies to our lives, it means that we have the image. The image that Christ as the crucified king sits on his throne in heaven, that he is going to raise us up. And because of that, we keep his commandments. For Jesus says that anyone who loves him will keep his commandments. John tells us that he who practices righteousness is righteous. It's not complicated. That's why God tells us to, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It has been a continual promise. Live the way God has called. Keep in mind that when we do this, he will raise us up. Who's he raising up? The poor in spirit. The meek. Those who mourn. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart. Those persecuted for righteousness sake. The Beatitudes, those are what we're supposed to be embodying. And if you embody those, Jesus will exalt you. And what happens in the new heavens and the new earth after we're exalted? After Christ raises us up and we're made perfect, after glorification comes, we receive crowns and white robes and the right to eat from the fruit of the tree of life. What happens then? We throw those crowns at the feet of Christ and exalt him even more. So Jesus will be exalted. He will be exalted either through judgment or through love. For God can show his glory by judging both the righteous and the unrighteous. And if we love people, if we believe that Jesus really was raised, really was exalted to the high priesthood, if we believe that he sits now at the right hand of God and continues to minister to his people, if we believe that he will continue to be exalted and will be exalted at the end of all things as God's perfect priest, king, and prophet, if we believe what he has said is going to come to pass, 
then we must care about loving others and loving God. We must live our lives in such a way that when we interact with people, they say, wow, that person really loves Jesus. It means sometimes you have to go out on a limb and say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? It means you have to invite people to church with you. It means you have to do all of those little things that make us uncomfortable, but the Holy Spirit is pushing us to do because we know it's right, and you cannot quench the Spirit, right? That's Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians is not to quench the Spirit, but to live the life that you were called to live. And if you've been saved, if you've been born again through Christ Jesus, then you've been set apart for good works. You've been set apart to live a life honoring him. So I think that we need to go and do that more and more. We need to keep this picture more and more in our heads. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this time spent, hopefully, fruitfully. Lord, thank you for the exaltation of your Son, raising him to a high priest that glorifies us, or glorifies him, who opens the throne of grace that we may enter boldly on the day of judgment, that we may know that you love us. Lord, thank you for giving us a new heart and a new spirit, allowing us to live lives marked by love. That, Lord, thank you for sending your spirit and letting him fill us, work through us, helping us to glorify your son. And Father, thank you for the fact that you will exalt your son over every power and principality, everything that is and was and will be. Father, we ask that you help us to sow righteousness and to reap the fruits of the Spirit, to be abiding in the fine of Christ at all times. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.